If anything, the travails of the past year have sharpened our focus. Small rituals have taken on new relevance and importance. Whether it's that mood-brightening table linen or that perfectly cold glass of wine at the end of each day, the things we surround ourselves with have the power to set the tone. We become more attuned to our possessions. I would argue that now, the stories behind the garments we wear also matter more than ever, as do the fibres they're made from and the values they represent. So, as spring colours burst into life around Europe, in this episode of Confect Corner, we meet the people bringing joyful, considered, compelling products to life. From the peerless duo behind the fashion brand Colville, to the Dutch designer and colour consultant Hella Jungerius, and Lisbon-based food entrepreneur Rita Santos. We ponder the power and joy of busking. We feel it's time to inject some vibrant colour back into our lives in more ways than one. I'm your host, Sophie Grove, and this is Confect Corner. We are celebrating colours in all our fashion stories. It's time to wake up and wear beautiful, sunny colours. But there's lots and lots of women like us who want to feel really good about clothes, good about where they came from, good about the colour, good about the way you feel in them, how you move in them. I really love this sensitivity and this sensuality and this way of expression. Hello and welcome to the third episode of Confect Corner. Each month I'm joined by Julian Debias and Confect Style Director Marcella Palak. Hi Sophie. Hello Sophie. Hello, hi. Well listeners will know that Julian is usually sitting across from me here in our London studio, but... She has defected to the Zurich offices for quite some time, Gillian. <laughs> well, yes, what was meant to be two weeks has kind of morphed into uh, five and a half weeks. Um, but I do want to return to London, so I'm flying back on Thursday. And I'm actually, I'm so looking forward to see the metamorphosis of London, how it's come out of this past year and uh, the caterpillar turning into the butterfly. Well, it's certainly happened and it's in full bloom. So we're on hand to welcome you back. And I'm slightly relieved, in fact. <laughs> I'm getting a bit lonely in here. Every episode, we start by each discussing something that has caught our eye or piqued our interest recently. Marcella, perhaps we can start with you. Yes. So hi, Sophie. Probably, you know, Utoke, the famous Lakes Zurich Beach Club. I'd like to share with you that it opened last week. So one week ago, our buddy Utoke opened the doors. The first question I asked was, how cold is the water? And I thought probably 13, 14 degrees. No, it is six degrees. And people are jumping in. <laughs> and I love this joy that people can't wait for summer, for spring, for swimming and beach clubbing. It's really wonderful. And uh, I'm not dipping into the water. It's a little bit too cold for me, like other people's. But uh, just the anticipation is a great joy. And only buying a seasonal ticket is already also a great joy. That's a symbolic moment when you hand <laughs> over your your money for the next well ten weeks more. <laughs> but I hope you'll Half be dipping a year. in. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how wonderful! And for people who don't know, the Autoke is just the most beautiful structure. It's floating 
sort of old wooden bathing huts and stripes and wonderful corners of sunny um, relaxation and peace right in the middle of the city. I am very envious. With a gorgeous terrace where you can have lovely glasses of white wine while you watch the other bathers dip into the cold water. (laughs) Gillian, make the most of it while you're there. (laughs) No, I'm for dry land uh, this time of year. (laughs) Well, as soon as I arrive in Zurich, I'm going to make up for the lack of swimming on the other side of the desk and leap in. But by that time, it'll be much warmer, so I'll have no excuse. (laughs) Gillian, tell me about what you've been doing in Zurich in the last few days. Well, every time I come to Zurich, I always make a little pilgrimage to one of my favourite, favourite stores. And, you know, now that we really don't take retail for granted anymore, it's even more of a ritual. And uh, I was delighted to see that my favourite shop featured in this month's edition or the second edition of Confect. It's called Limited Stock. And it is just that. It's in the old town and it's a beautiful, small, almost like a glass house of a building. And the selection is so carefully done of just beautiful design objects for the home. Um, My favourites are always the Lobmeyer glasses that could be in a museum, but they're made for everyday life, just with a bit higher price tag than my snack bracket. But it really is one of those places you just adore looking at and finding out the stories behind the craftsmen and the people who are making the pieces. So yes, that was my little uh, journey this week in uh, Zurich. Now I've been journeying around London and there's one Well, it's not completely new, but there's a wonderful project which has just sort of reopened, as it were. Uh, It was Van Gogh's house while he lodged in London at Georgian Terrace in Stockwell, down where I used to live. And it was very forlorn for many years. And it's just been restored with some amazing donations and some international donors. But it's very evocative of Van Gogh's work and in there beautiful ceramics uh, by Francesca and Fossi and I've just seen shoots of it in this wonderful golden light and they're almost like pieces of furniture tables and sideboards but made from this amazing ceramic and also the glazes are very Van Gogh. They're yellows and greens and blues. Um, so very unusual. It's a new design art collective called Canopy Collections. So that's caught my eye and just a lovely address in Stockwell to kind of visit when we can really go inside, which is very soon in London. Let's do a field trip, Sophie, when I'm back. Excellent. <laughs> well, our first guests today are the power duo behind the boutique fashion brand Colville. Their ethos is rooted in expressing the feelings and values of contemporary women with sustainability and repurposing in sharp focus. Self-described as the antithesis of fast fashion, Colville is a brand that values individuality, longevity and craft. Founded in 2018 by Molly Malloy, former design director at Marnie, and by Lucinda Chambers, previously fashion director at British Vogue. Molly, Lucinda, great having you here on Confect Corner with us. I have been poring over your beautiful collections and I find them such tonic and they're so uplifting. This riot of colour and texture, they feel very much of the moment, what we need. But I wondered if you could cast your mind back to a couple of years ago when you founded Colville and tell us sort of why you felt the industry needed this new take on production, transparency, but also a kind of aesthetic that is so uplifting and and positive? I'm not sure we 
thought in that strategic way, I don't think Molly and I think in that way at all of what does the industry need? I think it was more coming from a place of what would we love? What would Molly and I love to wear? And when we looked around, it was very hard to find a designer who could kind of meet our needs in a way. It was more like, how do we solve our own problem? Which is where will we get our clothes from? Because, you know, we had both left Marnie and we'd worked there for a very long time and it was like a kind of playground for us. And then suddenly wasn't the Marnie that we knew and we both left. And so we were like, okay, so where do we go now? And we were just like, well, we've got to, we've got to do it ourselves. And uh, yeah, I think it came from a place of absolute desire and necessity. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing that I think it was Molly who said that you learnt at Marnie that fashion shouldn't be too serious. And it's interesting you say it was a playground because there was this sense of experimentation, which is very much evident in your collections. Yeah, I think also Lucinda and I don't take things too seriously by our natures. We're very free, I think. That's the thing that makes Colville really exciting and that we don't have boundaries and we're always up for pushing ourselves and opening new doors. And and I think that's the magic. And that was also the magic at Marnie. And I think that's our magic together. We have great fun as well. And I think you can feel that in the clothes that, you know, that we we enjoy what we do. We enjoy it and we want other people to enjoy it. And we want the women that are wearing it or the men that are wearing it to enjoy it as well. Because, you know, men are buying our clothes too. And there's a joyousness to it. I think that sense of experimentation and pushing the boundaries, you know, that's very Molly. You know, Molly's like, let's try it and see. I mean, and, you know, it comes out unexpectedly amazing and incredible. And I think that's very true, you know, with the people that we work with as well. It's like, let's meet them and see. Let's, you know, let's all our sort of collaborators, you know, it's like a sort of collective. Um, I think that openness and the lack of fear about whether something's going to sell or whether it's, I, mean, I think it comes from a place of confidence in a way. We don't think we're extraordinary women. You know, I think we think that there's lots and lots of women like us who want to feel really good about clothes, good about where they came from, good about the colour, good about the way you feel in them, how you move in them. And so I think it comes from that place of experimentation and empowerment and longevity you know that these clothes are really made to last and they're they're beautiful things they're not just coming and going I loved how one journalist described um, Colville as a part grown-up uh, YBA, young British artist, part polished portobello market. Now, as a Londoner, I sort of get that. Now, I'm not sure if that's how you describe yourself. How would you describe the look and the essence of your pieces and your accessories? I don't really want to say that it's eclectic. I think there's a sharpness to it and a coolness to it, but there is also, yeah, an eclecticness, I guess, that's mixing craft and tailoring and silhouette because Lucinda and I are really passionate about shape as well so it isn't just about the texture it's also really important to shape and you know the cut of a garment and the fabric we use we're constantly pushing boundaries with the the fabrics and developing and trying new techniques and I don't know whether that answers the question to how I describe us but I don't know Lucinda how would you describe Colville? I think it's sort of joyous with an edge you know it's like it's quite punchy I think the clothes make you feel confident but I think they're for confident women but they're also for women who 
not necessarily a sort of like loud, you know. What I think is really interesting about Colville is there's lots of entry points into it. So you can be quite a quiet, introvert, interesting person and find something quiet and interesting about our collections. And then you can be this really, you know, ballsy woman who really defines herself by her style as well. There's there's kind of very interesting, and as Molly mentioned, you know, the tailoring aspect. You know, I've got a black coat by Colville, which is from our first ever collection. And it's just, it's just so quietly, insanely beautiful. And it's like, it wears you. It's just so beautifully made. And I think the make and the craft, as Molly said, the make, the craft, the textures, the juxtaposition of colour and print, but also the quiet things are there that, you know, really speak to a lot of different women. So I would say it's eclectic in in the sort of women that we appeal to. And, and as Molly said, the men as well. I mean, one of our, yeah, I mean, one of our top people is a man and he wears the dresses and he just looks sensational in them. I mean, you know, I mean, it's just so brilliant that they inspire people to, to dress like that. Personally, I feel so drawn to each object when you can read who it was made by and which particular kind of fibre or texture or traditional craft you, you're employing, but in this beautiful modern way. Do you think that's something that consumers increasingly want? I mean, I'm speaking as a as a customer, as a kind of someone who cares about the ethical provenance of clothes. I just wondered whether you think that people really sort of need that in this market, or is it a sort of luxury? I think it's increasingly important that people know who who have made their clothes and where they've come from and the story that that each piece has and we've kind of grown with that as well it was something that we started off working with a tribe in northern Colombia that made the bags for us the cylinder bags and we sold I think 35 in our first collection and the woman that we liaise with who liaises between ourselves and and the tribes women said you know it's great these women are so grateful these 35 bags have kept a village eating 16 families eating for three months you know she was like thank you and I think for Lucinda and I that felt incredibly good especially after working in fashion for so long and you realize that you can actually help somebody through what we do and what we're putting out into the world I think that resonates so much with ourselves and also you think it must resonate with other people. So we've kind of gone with the flow and it's really interesting as well, working with these tribes and now we're working in Mexico and Brazil that what's great is that we're what we produce is determined by what they can produce and respecting their output and respecting their traditions. So yeah, I think for us, absolutely, it's really important. Even, even the clothes we make in Italy, not necessarily made by artisans, but the people that work in the factories, we've been to the factories, we know that it's fair trade, we know that the, the, um, the conditions are, are great and we work with really, really good factories. It's, it's important to be conscious about this and, and I think people, people really respond to that. And I also think money, you know, is very, very hard earned now. People, you know, whether they decide to buy that handbag or that handbag is a huge investment. You know, it's a, cho- it's a real choice I think more and more they kind of want to know as Molly said you know they want to know the provenance of it and we didn't do it like that we didn't set out like that at all and it's all our collaborations are kind of like Colville chance meetings you know they're like 
Molly met this woman on a beach and I sat next to this woman at lunch and now we do rugs, you know, in uh, Dachau and, you know, as Molly's in the Colombian bag. So it's very organic how it happens and it's really about people and people behind it. But I think, you know, when you, you know, work very hard to earn your money, I think you want to know where that money is going to. And I think more and more increasingly to have something that is meaningful apart from just what it is, but where it's made and who made it is, it's just vital, really. We've loved sort of collaborating. It's a kind of meeting of, you know, craft and minds and then making that craft relevant to our audience so that makes them relevant. And I think, you know, we can do a lot of good good like that. I think it's a sort of two-way, it's totally a two-way street. You know, we love what they do. They love what we can bring them. And then let's meet and let's, Let's bring your craft out. Let's shine a light on it, you know? And that's a, that's a, just such a wonderful, it's a fabulous thing to do, actually. I wanted to finish up with a question really to both of you. I mean, it feels so significant that two people with such an amazing um, history in, in magazines and also design should come up with Colville um, at this moment. But do you feel more generally that the fashion industry is really sincere about change and sustainability and and has there been a profound shift in the way this industry works more more generally beyond what just you're doing i think so i think i think what's brilliant about now is of course you know the word sustainable is on everybody's lips because luckily the questions are being asked and of course like any industry there'll be some people who say it's sustainable and it's possibly not. And I think there are some who really are committed. From Molly's and our point of view, you know, we research every fabric and we will choose fabrics over other fabrics, even though the cost is more punitive because it's more sustainable. And and those questions are constantly, constantly asked. And I think from our very first collection, you know, we did upcycle things. So but it wasn't because that was the buzzword and the, and, the, and the phrase that everybody was using, but just because actually it came out of something like, oh my God, we really want these kind of amazing sleeves. And how do we do that when we want all the colours to be different? Let's buy vintage and cut them all up. And, and that just sort of grew and grew and grew. And it be, it's become a really big part of what Colville is. It's just another aspect of Colville that we've done right from the beginning. I think what's brilliant is that, you know, there is a light being shone now and we have to tread very carefully because also, you know, like the Uyghurs in China, you don't want, you know, punishment can't happen. And the big guys are changing. And I think, you know, yes, these are very, very big tankers to turn around. But I think what's fantastic is there really isn't any place to hide anymore. And I think everyone is asking those relevant questions. And so there's been a huge seismic shift in the fashion industry about sustainability, about fast fashion, about, you know, disposing of clothes. So I think it can only gain traction and become more and more sustainable, hopefully, and relevant. It's very interesting. And we are complete fans of Colville, (laughs) Confect. And as a magazine, we've been really sort of very fastidious about going out and finding the, the crafts, the weavers of South Tyrol and all these different tiny little workshops and ateliers. Thank you so much for, for joining us on Confect Corner. That was Molly Malloy and Lucinda Chambers, founders of Colville. 
And you can find more about their brand in issue two of Confect magazine, which is available in all good newsstands now. And now to Berlin, where this month, journalist and Confect contributor Kimberly Bradley got the opportunity to explore the world of Dutch designer and colour consultant Hella Jongarius. An artist in pandemic residence at the city's Gropius Bau Museum, the upcoming Woven Cosmos is an exhibition which showcases the wonders of Jongherius's intricate textile works, as well as the potentials of three-dimension and even participatory weaving. Alongside running her own studio, Jongherius Lab, the artist is also art director for colour and materials at Swiss furniture brand Vitra. A woman with rather a few strings to her bow, Kim caught up with her ahead of her exhibition's opening to talk about her artistic process and the spirituality of weaving. The show is about weaving, not only as a technique, but the different layers of weaving, so the cultural meaning of weaving. You see looms. There is a special loom made out of four standard looms where I can do 3D weaving. There is an interactive space where we dance a yarn with the visitors. There is a cosmic loom that I'm building where we are spinning yarns from waste from industry. Each day a yarn and we fill up a warp on the cosmic loom with the whole idea that spinning yarns and using a spindle weaving from the ancient world was a way to understand how the moon and the sun was turning. I tried to come with a kind of metaphor of weaving a new texture for the world, coming into the healing uh, of objects. I think there is a lot of illness or sickness in the relation we have with our objects or the relation we have with materials. So we come in a, in a room where I have space amulets, healing objects for spaces. And the whole topic of healing is, is a new topic for me. In the relation we have with our objects, we have the functionality, we have beauty. There are many layers that we have in this relation. It's our, our silent partners, the objects around us. And I'm very interested in what is the healing, who is sick, Then there is a part of what is the future of weaving. How can we innovate in this old craft? And these are topics like uh, 3D weaving, that's of my interest. So we are weaving modules uh, that are uh, flat woven as sandwiches and that you can pop up as cubes, as modules that can be used in architecture, pliable architecture, because weaving is the strongest and lightest construct that you can use. And then there is a part, another room, the last room, I'm sorry, is a a room where I uh, weave woven windows as a topic, so more painting with yarns and more an expression of uh, what is possible on industrial machines. Does all of this represent a huge shift in your working life? Or have some of these ideas been brewing for quite some time? I mean, you've worked for years with some of the major industrial design companies, also very textile-based, but this seems to me to be by far the most spiritual but also artistic expression of these things. I'm just wondering how long has this been maybe simmering in your mind? And what does this show mean to you? It's a journey. Uh, It's not uh, overnight. 
but for a longer time I feel that I cannot express myself any longer in industry. So I was working in industry to change something from within the system because I think if you change something from within the system you have a larger voice than make individual objects. Uh, I did it for a long time and it was interesting and I also achieved a lot but since now the latest years we all know from the climate crisis we need to change something and also industries now know, politics now know so in a way I said, check, I did it, you know. They don't need me for this revolution within companies because they all know, they all have their targets to be fossil free, to have recycled materials and so on. So I think I can express myself more, but also have a larger voice on cultural podia. And I think it's true that this, in this latest show, my handwriting is changing because I don't have questions from industry. It feels like liberating myself to feel free to express myself in the way I like to. Going back to something you said before, this idea of relationships of people to their objects, what do you think could improve those? In textiles is a material that we are most related to. We sleep under it, we wear them. We change it every day often. We know exactly what we are wearing, most of us. We know like today cotton and tomorrow wool, what is the weather. So we are most related to textiles. We can produce it also easily. But if you talk about appliances or technical things or sofas or cars, this relationships uh, and this industrially made uh, products to have a relationship with industrial products has to have an human layer within it so you have to resonate with your product because it has an individual touch or it is a recycled material or it's easy to repair or you have surfaces that if you bought it and it's broken you call somebody they pick it up they repair it taking care of the products also gives you a relation with your products Also, I think in, in the politics, we need to change something. So the politic has to come with regulations, like something some more expensive. So it is a multifaceted problem. It's not easy to stop consuming. It's a major social problem that you need to solve. Yeah, it has many, many angles. But as a designer, I feel responsible to take my part. When I started my career, this was a topic and it's still my topic after 30 years. How can we relate to our objects? And I still have many questions that are open. Yeah. What's the potential of woven objects? You showed us solar modules woven into kind of a movable, expandable piece. Could you explain the thinking behind that? Yeah, this is about 3D weaving. So normally you weave flat and it is always a skin that you later on sew together into a 3D cloth or sofa upholstery. And here I thought, you know, if textile is the strongest and lightest construct, then it's, it's a good idea to weave it already in 3D. That is done for cars with carbon, weaving with carbon. Parts of cars are wo woven, also airplanes, because you need to have a light construct. So I thought, why don't we weave our buildings, you know? Why don't we change something in the poisoning building industry with cement and baton? 
we need to have lighter constructs. And that's why I came with this 3D weaving. And then you could maybe also add functions within this 3D weaving, like you weave in solar cells. So your facade could pop up when the sun is shining or you pop up a balcony uh, when it hits the sun. What was it like working these months in the Gropiusbau? Yeah, this, this was, uh, was a really, really super nice to also have a studio here because, you know, we had this, the right scale. In the studio, I've got a big studio, but they're all small rooms. It's an old building, total other light conditions. And here I had this huge bit window, so I could see it immediately in the right light. And we could breathe, you know, the space and, and the team, half of the team was here, half of the team was in the studio. Uh, and it's, it's really, it was amazing to to have this spot and uh, yeah, to to explore and to to wander around, to get lost in the space. So I, I really enjoyed being here. I will miss it. <laughs> Did you capture a little bit of the spirit of the original purpose of the building? Because there were studios here before. Yeah, there were studios here before. Well, that was also the night of the séance. So uh, we did a séance downstairs, asking the spirits of the building with a few shaman to ask them, is the building vital? Are there still things? What do we need? Do we need to heal something in the surrounding? Because I thought, you know, I'm asking data from science, from ancient uh, uh, crafts. So why don't I, I also ask the data from the spirit if I call this as a cosmic show? But the space felt very vital and also the atrium on that night, the altar, it was so round, it was so, felt very spiritual, very religious in a way, very silent. And also in the atrium you see signs, old signs, the north, the east, the west and the south. And we we were asking the spirits of the different directions. It was so beautiful. And normally it's very cold over there, so the, the people of the museum were asking me like, it will be so cold because it was winter. It was so warm that night. It was beautiful, the sound of the chanting. And there we received some information for the cosmic loom, like colors, but also the uh, structuring the days of the week for the yarns to spin and having the Thursday and the Saturday as a special uh, days. So we weave, uh, we spin special yarns on Thursday on the Saturday because Saturnus and Jupiter will change during this exhibition. So in that sense, uh, the building helped me a lot. That was Confect's contributing editor, Kimberly Bradley, in conversation with the designer, Hella Jongerius. Woven Cosmos runs from April the 29th through to August the 15th at Berlin's Gropius Bau Museum. Still to come, we'll get a snapshot of one of our fashion shoots in this season's Confect. The writer, Nadia Awusu, tells us why she has such a personal connection to buskers and we'll meet a woman behind a stylish new grocer's promoting independent Portuguese products in Lisbon. You are listening to Confect Corner. Confect Corner is brought to you in association with Edelweiss Air. Edelweiss is Switzerland's leading premium leisure carrier, with an impressive food portfolio to match. So whether you're missing those Mykonos skies or Ibiza nights, why not head there 
by Zurich. You'll receive the warmest of welcomes and an impeccable in-flight experience. Discover your dream destination. Whether you're gearing up for the Greek islands or mulling the Maldives, craving a hit of Havana or longing for Cancun. Head to flyedelweiss.com for direct flights from Zurich to over 70 destinations, including more than 30 around the Mediterranean. With Edelweiss Air, you'll discover the most beautiful side of every destination. Let's head to Lisbon to meet Rita Santos, the woman behind the shop Comida Independente, which translates to independent food. The venture started out as a grocery shop and wine cellar, but slowly it started to incorporate a bar space up front where people could come and taste the amazing natural wine selection over bites and nibbles. And now it has evolved into some sort of movement, showcasing the best of Portugal through its small producers, from charcuterie makers to tea growers and, of course, to winemakers. The shop has quickly become a hangout for chefs and food connoisseurs, all eager to see the new products Rita has brought in from her travels around the country. And during lockdown, Rita took the project outdoors, transforming it into a marketplace where Lisbon's locals could buy fresh, organic produce straight from the farmers and growers. Our reporter in Lisbon, Gaia Lutz, met up with Rita at the shop to hear more about the project and the importance of supporting local growers and business owners. We wanted to get together farmers and artisanal products coming from all over Portugal and have it together in one place. So the idea is not to be an organic shop or a natural wine shop. It's much more to be a place where things have an origin. So there is an expression of the land in the product. Tell me now a bit practically what we have in here, but also I know the project expands beyond this actual shop, mm-hmm. restaurant, bar. Tell <laughs> me what's the idea, what's being served over there, what was the idea here and beyond? So, the idea of the shop is to have a contemporary approach towards these artisanal products. Basically, what we have here is we have uh, wines. I would say like 60% of what we sell is wine. We also have specialties like charcuteries and cheeses and bread. We have an amazing sourdough bread and teas and coffee. So this is all about these um, producers that were carefully selected based on the depth of their work. People can come here and have just a glass of wine. Actually, we started the bar with just three seats. Now we have a few tables and a few tables outside. Our customers are really understanding because sometimes it's it's really like an improvised kind of uh, setting that we do. So it's very informal, very personal also. And what is the connection of the markets? When the first lockdown came, we very quickly adjusted to delivering fresh food to towards people's houses so um, suddenly we were reaching out for somehow different customers because usually here at the bar we have more uh, like um, 
young people that come for a drink, some more informal, casual moments. And we shifted that into delivering, at some point we were delivering 350 families uh, their fresh goods every week. <laughs> so huge operation, huge uh, responsibility also, huge impact on the farmers that suddenly didn't have any restaurants. So we were the channel where they could sell the products through. You know, people sometimes mention the reinvention of the business, but we did this like overnight. In 48 hours, we had a website on air, <laughs> and that was good. I worked for Microsoft before, so it was the different skills coming together. For me, it's very funny how it takes, because I, I loved when I went to the market. I mean, for me, how I missed, I mean, I grew up in Brazil. Markets was a very big part of my life. I came to Europe 10 years ago to London. They're a very nice farmer's market there, but it's funny how it takes a global pandemic to go back to an idea that's very simple yeah. and very old. Yes. And it's the market. It's <laughs> outside. There's no germs. There's no, as you said, packaging, all the things we're talking. And we already developed it centuries or millennia. Absolutely. And, and the market, for me, I love this perspective of quite middle age kind of market because the farmers come, even themselves, they trade amongst themselves because there is already someone doing bread who's purchasing the flour from the other farmer and we invited a cook doing some fruit pies and he's purchasing the fruits from the other farmer so it's really like a trading moment very healthy in this way when you bring your own products it became, I think, a bit of a trading of information. People would uh, talk to each other, see each other. So there was a lot of interesting phenomena happening on this farmer's market. It started as an experiment. I started by proposing eight sessions. All of these sessions would have a theme. The theme would be a seasonal product. I would challenge a cook to cook with this vegetable, let's say pumpkin, aubergine, uh, beetroots, we had eight different products. And before the market, I would go to the fields. So I would go to the farms with the cook very often. We would visit the farm, see the product on the land, understand with the farmer what are the challenges, what he's doing, why is this special, different kinds of sweet potato or different kinds of pumpkins. You can not imagine how many different kinds there is and they are different they have different uh, sweetness and different textures and there is so much every time you go deep into something you can learn so much you know on this holistic approach towards the, the land people would come to the market and they have seen before the product through the pictures and videos on social media and then they could buy the product from the farmer and they could also have something to eat by the cook that was making it. So it was really immersive, you know. It would be like every different things you can get from a market. It gave a lot of depth to these farmers. It also valued the products because you were having the best cooks in the town making the most out of these. And we haven't stopped since. That was Rita Santos speaking to Gaia Lutz in Lisbon.
Now, issue two of Confect magazine is out on all good newsstands and a big thanks to our readers who've been sending in lovely photos of shop window fronts around the world packed with copies. Marcella, we have some lovely fashion moments, beautiful spring silhouettes in the magazine. Can you tell me a little bit about what your favourite vignettes are from issue two? Well, actually, we are celebrating colors in all our fashion stories. It's time to wake up and wear beautiful sunny colors, which uh, look a bit strange in the winter. So we have yellows, we have blues, like you see on the cover. And I think with the, with the strong sun, which comes up in, in spring, like in the, in the Nice market, it looks beautiful. But then we have more softer colors, more colors of spices like browns, uh, whites, ivories. We took this in a gallery in the Nilufar Gallery space in Milan with two um, wonderful photographers, creative photographers, who catched uh, the new silhouettes beautifully with this vintage furniture from Nina Yashar from the Nilufar Gallery. Gillian, before we move on to our next item, did the fashion pages inspire you uh, this spring? Oh, well, totally, especially because I'm going to be back in five days of quarantine. I think I'm going to go through all my cupboards and throw out all my old clothes (laughs) and uh, just buy some fresh colours. It's really, you know, time for colour and all my blacks. Maybe not thrown out, they'll just be put away under the bed for, for a few months. Time to banish black for a little while. Marcello keeps calling us to wear lemons and oranges and I'm really tempted. <laughs> I need to be drawn away from my beiges and creams. But we... Combine it with them. It will look gorgeous. I promise to. The next time I see you, Marcello, there's going to be citrus. <laughs> citrus your, in mind. Yes, with your beige. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, we're going to talk about that shoot at Nilufer Gallery in Milan, a showroom for beautiful vintage furniture. The series of photographs combined fashion with chairs from the collection and was snapped by the Polish duo Magda Wunce and Aga Samsel, who are based between Warsaw and Zurich. We spoke to Aga about how the photo shoot came together and about Studio Wunce Samsel's approach to fashion. We are a duo, we working together doing fashion photography, portraits and commercial photography. We working for quite a long time together. Uh, we met at work. I was a stylist at that moment and Magda was taking pictures coming from time to time to Warsaw and well, we do some fashion editorial for some uh, Polish fashion magazines. So that was the beginning and uh, I was an agent of Magda and uh, we talked a lot about photography, visual things, and it turned out that we've got like very similar tastes and sensitivity. So one day we just decided to work together and it's passed like a long, long time. <laughs> so that's it. Here we are. So for Confec, we did a shoot in Milan, in uh, Nilofar Gallery, the place with amazing, amazing furniture. And I think this is one of the best places for collectors. We did it with uh, style director Marcella Palek and Martina Ribek, who was the stylist. And we, we were really happy for this meeting because uh, it was a really great team to work with. The brief was quite simple. 
use the concrete floor, uh, the white or gray wall, and use the, the furniture. <laughs> so that was that was the brief, and we did it. Of course, the f- we were thinking at the beginning uh, of doing it uh, in maybe more abstract way and maybe more performative way. Magda's got this kind of background also. She attended the dance uh, academy, modern dance academy in Zurich. So she's got this kind of background and she put a lot of attention to this element in, uh, in preparation on the set. But on the spot, it turned out that this, uh, this furniture was so precious, so delicate that we decided to focus on really on, on form of clothes, on, uh, on fashion and, and these uh, this objects. Doing the fashion shooting is... Uh, I think it's people. You cannot do it by yourself. Of course you can, but thinking about fashion shooting, it's a team. It's very important to to be surrounded by people who you trust, uh, who you can count on, who are professionals, who can uh, do actually what you expect or give you even some something more, some ideas, some inspiration. And of course the crucial thing is casting because uh, you taking pictures of somebody, some person, and when this person doesn't give you something, the picture, it will tell nothing. So it's really important to be surrounded by professionals. Actually, one of our inspiration is like a dance world. Uh, we really love uh, watching the dance shows and uh, some choreographers, of course, the legendary Pina Baus or Sasha Waltz or Teresa de Kermasker, a lot of uh, dance choreographer, which we really appreciate. This is one of our inspiration words. I still admire, I mean, I really, I really love photography of Harley Weir and uh, I know she stopped doing some fashion for the moment, but uh, I'm watching these pictures and uh, not even fashion. And I really love this sensitivity and this sensuality and this way of expression and uh, not obvious expression. Now it's very difficult to be original. I mean, uh, everybody inspires uh, themselves by everything. And uh, with this Instagram world, everything is available and you've got a feeling that everything is very similar to each other. But we're trying to not using uh, this kind of medium as an inspiration medium. So... We're trying to use a different kind of inspiration fields and I think this is the the main idea. That was Agus Samsel of Studio Wuncha Samsel and you can see their brilliant photo shoot in issue two of Confect. We'll end each episode of Confect Corner with a final thought. And this month we turn to the Ghanaian and Armenian American writer and urbanist Nadia Awusu. Here she reflects on busking and how her life has played out to the spontaneous soundtrack of street performers. Even if we were in a hurry, if my father heard live music, 
we always slowed down. He loved buskers. I remember a very hot summer's day in Rome. I must have been seven or eight years old. It was a weekend and I had been bribed with gelato to encourage me to study for a maths test. I was holding my father's hand, skipping towards my reward, when we heard classical music coming from behind us. Let's go and listen, my father said. No, I said. Oh, come on, he said. He picked me up, threw me over his shoulder and ran. Both of us were laughing. We came upon a group of three older gentlemen sitting in a row on a bench, each in a straw hat and sunglasses with violins tucked under their chins. They didn't have much of an audience, but a few people stopped to throw some change into their open instrument cases. I managed to be patient and wait through one tune, then I started to pull at my father's shirt sleeves. His eyes were closed and he was swaying softly. He took my hand and squeezed it. Just listen, he said. We are very lucky today. They play beautifully. We listened to two or three more tunes before my father agreed to leave, to buy me what I had been promised, two scoops of chocolate gelato in a cone. On that particular day in Rome, I was more interested in gelato than music. But most of the time, I delighted in listening to buskers with my father. He worked for the United Nations, so we lived in Uganda, Tanzania, England, Ethiopia, and Italy. I danced with him in a park in Paris to an upbeat jazz tune. A young couple joined in. They smiled at us and we smiled back. On another holiday in London, we stood in a big crowd of people watching breakdancers spin on their heads and leap over each other's bodies. Through our exhilaration, I felt connected to the other spectators. In unison, we gasped, yelped, clapped our hands. My father was born in Kumasi, the capital of the Ashanti region of Ghana. On one trip there to visit his family, while driving home to my grandparents' house, my father spotted a funeral procession. Funerals in Ghana are a festive affair, celebrations of life. There is drumming, singing, and dancing. Families set up tents in town squares. My father pulled over. We got out of the car and stood on the outskirts of the gathering. This was not an intrusion. It is expected that strangers will join at a respectful distance. A woman's voice rose in song deep and warm. A chorus of higher-pitched voices responded. I told my father that I felt the music in my belly. Of course you do, he said. You're an Ashanti girl. Music, he told me, is integral to the Ashanti culture and way of life. It isn't something to be only enjoyed on occasion in a concert hall. It needn't be relegated to time spent alone at home or in the car. In Ashanti land, there are songs and dances for milestones and everyday activities alike. There are songs for births, the naming of children, puberty, engagements, weddings, and funerals. There are songs for washing clothes, for cooking, and for flirting. There are dances for asking the ancestors for guidance and protection. Some rhythms are believed to have healing properties. Others are there to chase away evil forces. Perhaps this was why my father so loved buskers. He believed that music should be all around us all the time. When I was 13, my father died of cancer. Ever since, whenever I stop to listen to buskers, I think of him. 
As an adult, I have settled in New York, a city that is known for live music, including on street corners and public transportation. When busking has come under threat from proposed regulations, I have signed petitions and written to my local representatives. Street performance is part of the fabric of our city, I argue in my letters. It provides the soundtrack for our everyday lives. I write about my favorite New York buskers, a Cora player and singer from Mali whose voice on several occasions has moved me to tears, a cellist who plays in a beret and bow tie across the street from a restaurant where I am a regular with my husband, who is a professional jazz musician. When he was a university student, my husband often played the saxophone in parks for tips. There is a photograph that I love of him and two friends busking on a subway platform. He still makes music with those friends, but their busking days are mostly over. Those were happy years, my husband told me. We were so free, and some of the people who stopped to listen just really appreciated the unexpected music. I sometimes wonder whether I ever heard him play before I knew him. I like to imagine that I did. I like to imagine that even if I was in a hurry, I slowed down. I like to imagine my father beside me, eyes closed, swaying softly, or taking me by the hand, coaxing me to dance with him. What a beautiful piece there by Nadia Awusu. Marcella, Gillian, are you fans of beautiful, spontaneous busking? Oh, I loved her piece. It was so evocatively written and very touching. And, uh, well, of course, who, who doesn't love a good busker? But it, it sort of uh, it reminds me of when I was a student and I went to Venice. And it was late one night. And we'd been to the bars and the restaurants. And we just decided to sing in St. Mark's Square just for the joy of it. And before we knew it, people were throwing money at us. <laughs> so I think we could have carried on our travels by uh, doing the same thing every night. I mean, it just feels like busking has been missing from our lives a little bit when you walk around the empty streets and now they're coming back. This moment of jazz just blowing across you know, the Thames or the Seine is just so poignant sometimes and it is an expression of a city's identity. Uh, Marcella, do you have any, any memories of wonderful moments of chance encounters with really very good musicians? Actually, it's uh, linked with beautiful travels all around the world, uh, to New York, to Paris, to London. But I must confess, Zurich is not such a city for busking. Actually, there is not much busking around. <laughs> Probably it's Zurich, it's more like, uh, let's say, bankers, a money city. And I don't know, it's, uh, it's forbidden in the public transport. So there is not much busking around. But actually, I, I love it. I remember Paris, like I said, and New York especially, for really cool vibes. I mean, in I mean, Nadia mentions London and the South Bank, and I just have so many memories of, of seeing almost a whole set. Um, my friend, who used to be in the Portico Quartet, we'd go down to the South Bank and we'd just listen for the whole afternoon to this amazing sort of eclectic music. And, and it was just a concert. And I think that we forget how important that sort of just public forum for music is. Um, just the moments on the Seine when people just start dancing to whomever it might be. And they might even not 
be that great. <laughs> but there's a sense. And some buskers are just so attuned to sort of uh, spaces in the urban environment with great acoustics. And sometimes you'll go down in a grungy tunnel or an underpass and it will just sound like a recording studio because the acoustics are so incredible. It's really mesmerizing. But it's a nice moment to to remember all those wonderful musicians who haven't had a chance, in fact, to play to their audiences. And I think this weekend certainly we'll probably see many more moments of spontaneous joy (laughs) in parks and promenades around Europe. But I hope they'll come to you, Marcella. Yeah, (laughs) they'll come to you. Well, thank you to Gillian Tobias and Marcella Palick for keeping me company again. Looking forward to having you back in our London studio for the next episode, Gillian. You can buy issue two of Confect now from All Good Newsstands and confectmagazine.com. While you're on our website, why not sign up to our weekly newsletter, Confect Compact, for interviews, fashion tips, wine recommendations and recipes. Confect Corner was produced by Holly Fisher, Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds. We'll be back next month with more, but until then, from me, Sophie Grove, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>